Well, if you're new with us, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here, and I get the privilege to open up God's Word. So if you open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20, that's going to be where we will be for most of the day. Um, Way back in the day, we'll say, ah, four years ago, that feels way back, uh, I had this little thing called appendicitis during VBS. My wife and I have an ongoing debate. I say appendicitis is more painful than childbirth. And she says, she says, you're ridiculous. And I'm like, have you ever had appendicitis? How do you know? Have you ever had a child? Negative. So I talked to a woman who had open heart surgery, cancer twice, appendicitis, gallbladder taken out, and had like five children. And she said, bar none, appendicitis is the worst pain. Now, all you women, you're like shutting me out. You're like, I'm out of here. I'm not listening. It's a joke. Relax. Drawing you in. Everybody just chill. I'm sure that if I had a baby that it would hurt worse, I am confident. But don't tell my wife I said that, because I'll lose the argument. Um, so when I went into the uh, doctor, we waited and waited. And if you know anything about appendicitis, it gets progressively more excruciating, um, sort of like childbirth, right? And um, so I'm sitting there, and she says to me, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the pain? And my answer was, 17! 17, like, it's all, like 10 does not, that number does not have the capacity to hold what I'm enduring. They gave me sweet morphine, and I was wonderful. And a uh, little sidebar embarrassing comment, I came back to VBS because I was the, I was the greeter, the head greeter, and I'm, I, greeting ministry is the greatest ministry on the planet. Like, if I ever got promoted, they would put me as head greeter. And uh, so I was just freaking out about greeting ministry, and on my way to the hospital, I was like, Danielle and Brianne, I'm like, just make sure the greeting is okay and make sure you tell all the greeters this, this. So I came back, I was completely drugged up, and I sit down with Tara and Maria. Tara's our VBS coordinator, and Maria is, they both started coming to the church. They're kind of brand new. We have this like two hour long conversation. I don't remember a single word of it. Later that weekend, Tara comes up to me. She says, we, we, need, to, we need to talk. Okay. I'm like, what are you going to talk about? About our conversation uh, after your appendicitis at, outside. And I said, well, what did I talk about? And she said, let's just say, I know every part of your bowel movements. <laughs> and then it, it hit me. I was like, oh, I remember that. Oh, oh. And I was just remembering the conversation. I digress. The point of the sermon has nothing to do with that. But VBS brings back so many sweet memories. But there is a pain threshold that we have, and mine is so low. Anybody who knows me, if I just get bumped, I'm like, cut my leg off, it'll be better. You know, like, it's, it's just a very challenging thing for me, and so I don't like pain. And, and so people mock me for it, and it's a, it's a real problem. Um, but we have this pain threshold. Mine is very, very, very low. And uh, there's something that I call your spiritual pain threshold, okay? So emotional transition. I'm going to go serious for a moment. Your emotional pain threshold is when you spiritually or emotionally, you, you have an event or circumstance that happens that pushes you over the edge, right? So for me, it's, it's basically getting a splinter, okay? That pushes me physically over the edge, Okay. <laughs> But there are things in life that push you over your spiritual threshold. And, and honestly, you don't know where it is until you hit it, right? You might think you have the full capacity to deal with whatever God might throw at you. I'm all in. But then it comes and you are taken back by how um, broken you are over it. And everybody's threshold is very, very, very different. Um, and some of you, you get in this moment and you say, 
How could you allow this circumstance? How could you have ordained this situation? How could you have taken this relationship out of my life? How could you not give me a relationship? You know how desperate I am for that. And we shake our fist at God. And when you're in the season, when you're shaking your fist at God, you have met your spiritual threshold. Do you understand? Now, you can be a Christian and a non-Christian. It doesn't matter. You will get to a point where you are pushed to the edge. And I love that if you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, I mean, he is so patient when we're pushed over the edge. I mean, some of us have this idea that God is just like, get better, heal. And the Lord just comes alongside of us. And he has a destination for us. And the destination is to move us from fist shaking in the air, how could you, to genuine desire to know God, why did you? Do you see the difference? One is an accusation, and the other steps back and says, God, I want to know what you're up to so that while I'm in my pain, my bitterness, my heartache, I can lean into you and understand what you're doing. Now, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, sometimes you hit your threshold, and the Holy Spirit is just very gracious, and he takes you very quickly from how could you to why did you. And then there are some of us, it honestly, because maybe it's exposing dark parts of our hearts, it takes a long, long time. But he has a destination to eventually, maybe not get you out of the pain, but to get you away from the accusation to the submission. And it's a gut-wrenching process. Can I get an amen from anybody who has ever been in the how could you? And sometimes it can take longer than we want. But here's what I've learned, that eventually we get to the why did you? And when we get the answers, if we are blessed and privileged enough that God would give us those answers, we step back and we say, that, makes, that actually makes sense. I, I've asked God, God, why did you give me, allow me, or ordain for me some very, very, very hard years in my early ministry? Well, in the moment, in the middle, I'm, I was frustrated. God and I had a lot of words, you know, and mostly it was me ranting at him and him patiently listening and saying, just chill, just chill. But had I not, now I look back with the why, I would be a much, much worse leader. And I look back and I would say, I would go through that over and over and over again. I want to get even more personal for you. Um, I, I've asked God, why did you allow a friend to get raped and get pregnant? And then we met her daughter. And every year, it gets clearer and clearer why God allowed, ordained, whatever the word that makes you feel better about it is. And we step back and we're like, Huh, God, um, why did you give my good friend same-sex attraction? I mean, my good friend is shaking his fist at you. I want to know, like, why? Like, that's, why, why? What were you doing? They're in the middle. They don't know why yet, right? Um, God, um, why did you take that person out of my life? I love them. I need them. I want them. I have no idea what you're doing. In the middle of this, again, sometimes God gives you an answer, and sometimes he doesn't. And, but here's what I know. Eventually, God will take you from the how could you to the why did you. If you're not a Christian, I just want to just draw attention to something. I'm not asking you to like that. Because you lack what is essential for that process to happen. And that is the Holy Spirit. When somebody can be on the receiving end of excruciating pain and give God glory and worship him and not land and stay in a place where they shake their fist at him, that is not natural, that is supernatural. That is a move of the Holy Spirit. 
I'll tell you one of the best ways that we see true followers of Jesus Christ weeded out, and it is excruciating pain when they hit their spiritual threshold. That is where we see the true quality of somebody. When somebody eventually lands on the back, we, on the back end to the why did you, we step back and say, only the Holy Spirit in you could produce that. Because it's a natural question. If you're sitting out there and you're not a Christian, you should be asking, if God is good, then why does he let his children suffer? That's a legit question. If God is good, why does he make you go through so much pain? If he could stop it, why doesn't he? And the Christian, we ask the question, but when the Holy Spirit's inside of you, eventually, here's where you land. I don't know all the answers, but here's what I know that I know. If I knew what God knew, I would do what God does every time. If I knew what God knew, I would do what God does every single time. And so again, we, we step back and I just want to look at my non-Christian friends who you do not get how we think. You do not get how we can suffer so profoundly and then give Jesus glory and worship him and say whether the Lord gives or the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That, that is idiocy to you. And I just want to honor the fact that like, I, I get that. That is idiocy. And faith in a God that we cannot see or touch makes us do irrational things. And here's what happens. The Holy Spirit, when he's in you, he gives you the ability to begin to see things as God sees them. He gives you the faith to endure pain, even though you don't know the why, trusting and believing that one day the why will be made explicitly clear and you will step back and say this, if I knew what you knew, I would do what you did every single time. And this is how we endure, with faith, with faith, believing this. Now, we get to Hezekiah, and his life starts off, and it starts off awesome. I want to start in chapter 18, just give you a little um, introduction here. We'll land mainly in 20, but I want you to read this with me. And honestly, I wish every single sentence in this section of Scripture was written about me. It's awesome. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, According to all that David, his father, had done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Israel after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Any of you want to be Hezekiah right now? You're like, give me that, right? And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him, and he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified cities. So now, pause. I want to ask you a question. Answer it in your brain. What does Hezekiah deserve? What does he deserve? In your mind, what is God obligated to do for him? Now, if you answered, give him more health, wealth, prosperity, success in battle, success uh, wherever, if that was your inclination to answer that way, I want to call something out on you. Okay, you may have bought into even just an inkling of the prosperity, health, and wealth gospel. Just an inkling. Because here's what happens. We're going through life. We're like, I'm good. I'm faithful. I'm awesome. I'm righteous. I'm better than the person next to me. They're really bad. They deserve punishment. I'm good. I'm like generally doing well at my job. I don't cheat, lie, and steal a lot. I mean, I used to, but I don't even know. And then we hit our spiritual threshold. God allowed or ordained something in our life that pushed us beyond our capacity. 
And as soon as you shake your fist at God, here's what you're saying. I deserve better. You are in the wrong for allowing or ordaining this. I deserve health, wealth, prosperity, or success to some degree. Now, are you going to teach that? The majority of you know you won't, but it doesn't mean that there's not a little residue or seed of that belief deep down inside. And so we get to Hezekiah, and I look at his life, and you would expect, right? God's going to bless it, but that is not what happens. And look at verse 1 with me. It says this, In those days, and those days are the days of his obedience. Um, He has literally, it's just two full chapters of him obeying and being awesome and praying and and growing in intimacy with God. Like Hezekiah is just an awesome king. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. So here's what we know. We know that this death was going to be premature, Hezekiah is about 39 years old, and that's really young, fairly speaking, as death goes. And so he's not expecting at all that this was going to happen. And on top of this, not only is he young and premature, and just in terms of that age, uh, he has the nation of Assyria, a vicious nation, whom they just had a defeat, but if, if Hezekiah dies, they will come back in full force, and they will destroy Israel. Hezekiah knows that the safety and the peace of his nation was hard fought, but it is very tenuous, it is very fragile, and so he's waiting and he's, he just doesn't know. But you know what, I just, let's be honest here for a moment. Um, this is just hard. I want you to put yourself in his shoes. At 39 years old, the Lord Jesus comes to you and says, it's your time, you're going to die. What do you do? Uh, here's what I found. The Lord can take away a whole bunch of stuff in your life. He can take away relationships and idols and whatever else. But there seems to be nothing like your impending death that puts people over the spiritual threshold. The very reality that you're going to die pushes people over the edge. I have some really weird news for you. You all know that you're going to die, right? Okay. So when the news comes, should it be a shock? Well, no, but every time it is. I've never met somebody who's like, yep, waiting for that one to happen, right? (laughs) Ever. And the second you're born, you begin a trajectory toward death. I mean, death at every single day is closer. It's pushing you closer and closer to the edge. Like, you can't escape it. As Christians, you you may not go to church a lot, okay? We talk about death every week. We talk about death. We celebrate the death of God on the cross, okay? So death is a normal discussion, you know, for us. Um, But for whatever reason, death is weird to most people. It's hard to talk about. But for us, we just sit back and we say, you know what? Like, I live my life with an awareness that one day this life is going to be over. And one day I will be with Jesus forever. This is normal. But it doesn't always make it easier. But here's what Isaiah says. We go on. Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. So we play this game with our friends and our kids. We say, would you rather? Would you rather die without knowing in an instant, or would you rather know the timing of your death? Fun community group question. Think about it. For me, I would love to know. I would love to be able to be given the opportunity that Hezekiah was to set my house in order, to prepare the people around me, to say my final goodbyes. And I think most people, 
if you're not completely ashamed of your life or if you're not in Jesus Christ, most people would want the opportunity just to say, can we, can we have some goodbyes? It's a very rare, precious gift that God, that God gave him here. So I'm going to pause and want to talk about something that will help us understand the rest of this text and the point I want to make. I want to talk about death for a moment because, again, we found and we said that nothing brings somebody to the spiritual threshold like their own impending death. And you have to be able to answer three questions about death if you're going to face it semi-well. And the first one, if you're a Christian, you may know this, um, but here's the first one. Why is there death in this world? And the answer is very simple. The Christian worldview is the only worldview that I believe makes absolute sense out of all the insanity and craziness that we see in the world and in our own hearts, and it is sin. And sin is thoroughly corrupting. Everything sin touches dies. If sin is found anywhere in anything, Village Church, what must happen to that thing? It must die. You don't have to like it, but God, the judge, the ruler of the universe has made this and put this into the very rhythm and fabric of reality. Anything where there is found to be sin must die. Anything. And so this is just a general principle. And then when Adam and Eve ate, ate the apple and sinned for the first time, God told them, if you do this, you will surely die. And from this, we'll call it the disease, the condition of sin, the anti-God, the corrupting agent of the universe, the chaos creator, entered into every fabric of every molecule, of every human plant, animal, tree, everything you can imagine, and has begun corrupting it thoroughly and totally. And this is why the Bible teaches there has to be a new heaven and a new earth because the anti-God, the sin, the chaos creator must be negated and creation must be made new for righteousness to reign. And so we believe and we see that sin is the reason why all this is out here. But it begs a second question, what is sin? And the answer is twofold. You may have never thought about it like this, but it is a condition and a behavior. It's a condition, it's a disease, it is something that flows through the blood of the universe. It just is, it affects everything, and nothing has been unaffected or untainted by sin. So I want to do a little quiz with you. We're going to see how biblically smart you are. You guys ready? You're like, no. All right, if you're sleeping, wake up. Here's the, here's the, is it a behavior or condition? So I'm going to read you a Bible verse, and then you can tell me behavior or condition. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Condition or behavior? Condition, right? And so sin is pictured as a master. It is pictured as a ruler. And in this world, you have one of two masters, Jesus or sin. You take your pick. What does sin do? It steals, corrupts, destroys. It's the anti-God. Whatever is good, sin gets into it, dismantles it, corrupts, and ultimately destroys it. So this is why we say don't do things that are sin because inevitably they corrupt, dismantle, and, and destroy us. We'll go on. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Condition or behavior? Condition. This seems to be the general condition or disease or uh, entity of sin that is controlling humanity. We'll keep going. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Condition or behavior? Behavior. You guys are like geniuses. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ's condition or behavior. Okay, keep going. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, behavior or condition. Job. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a trick one. Behavior or condition? Both. Yeah, both. I mean, it applies to both. If God finds the condition of sin in somebody, the end result will be death. If God finds the behavior of sin in somebody, the end result will be death. There we go. Keep going. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. I think this is the condition. I'm 98% positive. You might be able to debate me and get me to say both. But, but isn't that such a good description? It deceived me and killed me. And finally, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, condition, or behavior. Both, right? It could apply to both equally. And so question number three, let's, let's go on. How does sin affect Christians and non-Christians differently? You've you got to get this in your brain. And let's talk a little philosophy theology for a moment, and I think it'll help make this point, and then we'll go back to Hezekiah. So if you are not a Christian, I want you to hear my statement, get offended, and then hear the Bible, okay? If you're not a Christian, the Bible says that you have no capacity to perform a righteous deed before God. Nothing. Like, zero. Now, before humans, like, people may be like, you're amazing, you're awesome, good job, you're so moral, you're so ethical, and all that kind of stuff, right? But for the non-Christian, the Bible is explicit, I'll read it to you so you know, that you have no capacity to do anything righteous before God, so that if you, as a non-Christian, stand before God and try to bring your righteousness to him, what will it be? There, there is none. You have nothing to bring. What you think is righteous, he says. So here's what Romans... Um, uh, give me, uh, there we go. Chapter 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. The mind that is set on the flesh is the non-Christian. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is one of the greatest like, motives that you might have to come to Jesus. If you truly want to make God happy, the only way you can do that is by coming to Jesus by faith. Then... You can do this. So another category, demons. Do demons have the capacity to do righteous deeds? The answer is no. Their master is sin. They are thoroughly corrupted by sin. Um, they don't have that capacity. Are they, do they have a free will that, that, that they can choose to do something righteous or something unrighteous before God? No. Their will is in bondage or slavery to sin. They're not free in that sense of the equation. Let's talk about angels. Do angels have the freedom to do righteous deeds before God? Answer, yes. Can they sin? I don't understand the nuances, the details, but here's what it appears in the scripture has happened. That there was a moment in history where God gave the angels an opportunity to make a decision. A third went with Satan, two-thirds went with Jesus, and from that moment on, there seems to be no more options of choosing. It seems that angels aren't like going back and forth from sin, back to Jesus, back to Satan, but that they're stuck, in a sense, and that their moral free will has been taken away. They have the freedom to only do righteousness. So if God goes up to an angel and says, hey, go do this for me, the angel will not, because he cannot or it cannot, uh, say no. Let's talk about God. Is God free to sin? That's a trick question. God can't sin because there's no sin in him. He doesn't have capacity to sin. And so God's 
will, if you will, is not free. It's, it's restrained and constrained by pure, holy righteousness. This is why this is important. Christian, I want to talk to you. Do you have the ability to choose sin or to choose something that God sees as genuinely righteous? The answer is yes. Of all creatures in all creation, spiritual, physical, heaven, and earth, you, Christian, are the only one with the moral free will to choose righteousness or to choose sin. You have that choice. So that when the uh, non-Christian, God says, why did you do that? They are a slave to sin. They must do that which is according to their master. But you, Christian, you have the ability to choose whom you will submit yourself under in any given day or circumstance. Isn't that crazy? So you can never go before God and say, sin made me do it. No, Christian, you chose it. Is there sin in you? Yes, but sin is not your master. So why do we say this? You, You have to understand here. He's 39 and he's dealing with death. And here's what you need to understand. Death is the result of sin. And all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and all will face it. And Christian, what you need to understand is that death is here because of sin. Death is a condition with which you're born in and it is a behavior of which you have fully participated. And when God comes and he takes your life, he is fully just to do it because wherever there is found to be sin, there will inevitably be death. But right now, Christian, you're not a slave to sin. You are freed from the power of sin. So you do not need to submit yourself to the yoke and the slavery of sin because it will, as Paul said earlier, deceive you and kill you, which is why we want so badly for you to walk in the light of Jesus Christ because in Jesus there is life and joy and peace. We want that for you. Verse 2. We're only on verse 2. Don't worry. This will go fast. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And this last line I just think is so meaningful. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Why did he weep? I don't care who you are. So we pendulum swinged, okay, where we said Christians expect death, it's coming, et cetera, chill out, it's going to be there, right? But let's, let's make sure we don't like, leave you over here and let's find a middle ground. I don't care who you are. Death is ugly, grotesque, and it is a result of sin, and God does not rejoice over death. Death is necessary, but it does not make God clap his hands in heaven and go, yay, 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 and nor should it make us. So if you are receiving your death sentence, if you have a, a fixed time set before you, I fully expect that you're going to weep bitterly, and I'm going to weep right there with you. And the Christian life is It's just all of these tensions. Like, how do I rejoice that I'm going to be with Jesus and then weep that I'm not going to be with my family and my friends and my children and all of this stuff? Like, the Christian life is so confusing and weird, but we learn by the Holy Spirit to not necessarily land in the pendulum swing back and forth, but over time, in the midst of pain, we end up landing somewhere in the middle and the Holy Spirit is with us. It's just hard. Um, But I want you to notice, he's not asking for healing. I mean, ask for healing all you want, but I just want to draw your attention. He did not go to God and say, heal me. This is a prayer of preparation. This is a prayer of preparation, but let's see what happens. God in heaven sees his son, Hezekiah, weeping bitterly, and he immediately responds. This is great. And even before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, I mean, Isaiah's watching him weep. He sees this, he leaves. The word of the Lord came to him. 
Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I love this line. Christians, like just hold this. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. Oh my, what would you do? I'd be like, woo! <laughs> I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And at this point, you stop and you say, Hezekiah, stop now. Worship God. God's word has been spoken. This is final. Like, this is amazing. And what does he do? We're going to find out in a moment, but I want I, you got to get this. The godliest, most righteous people on the planet, when you hit your spiritual threshold, it will always bring out parts of your heart that you have never seen before. Always. And God, in his grace, does not expose all of us all at once. Can I get an amen on that one? Oh my goodness. But your spiritual threshold puts you in a position where you had no idea that there were even these rooms in your house. The doors have been closed, they're dirty and dingy, and the Lord flings them open, and the must and the smell comes out, and you're like, I didn't even know that closet or that door was even there. And so here's what you're going to find, is that there are parts of Hezekiah's heart that still need to be exposed. And as we get to this next portion, you need to remember, some of you are new, you're not used to the king's, Every single story that's told is told for one goal, to expose the heart of the king to the reader. So every story is picked and chosen so that you might know what is in the heart of King Hezekiah. So now the author is going to show you, give you a glimpse of some of those rooms, that, those doors that have never been opened. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Okay, Hezekiah, I want to like reach the pages of scripture, wring his neck and say, here's the sign. The prophet of God told it to you. That's the sign. So grow up and take the word of God and its word. Now, let's be honest. Would I ever say that to Hezekiah in the moment? I'd go give him a big hug. I'd pray for him. I'd be like, Isaiah, I mean, here's the deal. Like, the Lord spoke, right? And you would think God would say, you faithful person, how dare you doubt me? But does God do that? When you shake your fist at God, when you challenge him, does he, he is so patient. I wish I had like a billionth of the patience that God has for me with other people. I mean, he is so good to us. And so if you're in like in the middle and you're shaking your fist at God, let me, let me just tell you, his patience is so enormous. You have not even begun to push it toward its edge. It goes on. And he says this, and Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord. Like the Lord already knew this was coming. And the Lord already went in front of him with his patience and his mercy. And he says this, that the Lord will do this thing he has promised you. And he asked him a question. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? And he's putting actually the ball back in Hezekiah's cords. You, you pick. And he goes on. Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. Do you hear his hesitance, by the way? I mean, like, where, what happened to the man who followed God no matter what all the time, who faced Assyria and conquered the Philistines? And now in the face of death, his spiritual threshold has been met, and he is, he's doubting. Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. 
So retrospect, right? In the middle of this, we're watching Hezekiah's heart, and Hezekiah's faith is being challenged. And God heals him. So in the book of Isaiah, the story of Hezekiah is told, and we're given a sneak peek into the why that God allowed Isaiah or Hezekiah to face death and why he allowed him to go through this season and to expose this part of his heart. And I want to read this to you. And again, if you're not a Christian, this is going to seem ridiculous. And I want to just honor that and say, I get it. If you are a Christian, here's my prayer for you, that you would understand the Holy Spirit is relentless and he will bring you to a place where you can say what Hezekiah is about to say. So he writes in response to his healing a long poem. And this is from the poem, the first verse that you can see. This is a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. And there's one little verse in this that just gives us a sneak peek, and here it is. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. Do you see, he went from shaking his fist, challenging God, not believing him, to palms up. This was for my good. Christians, just most of you have not even begun to tap into the pain that you're going to experience in life. Seriously. Like, every year, life gets harder. More people will die. More people will suffer. More people will walk away from Jesus. Wars will get bigger. Things will get harder. And anybody who is past the age of 65 will tell you that. It just gets harder. And your faith will be tested. And you will be tempted to shake your fist at God and say, how could you, how could you? If you loved me, you would. But the Holy Spirit is not content to leave you there. And somehow, Hezekiah steps back and says, this pain, this premature death was for my welfare. It exposed things in him. You'll see in the midst of it, it led him to levels of intimacy that honestly blessing could have never taken him. You step back and you're like, wow, can I say that? And then he says this, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Your non-Christian friend comes up to you and they see that you have hit your spiritual threshold. They look at your pain, they look at your suffering and they say, curse God and die. They say, a God who loves you would never do this to you, allow or ordain it. If God loved you and he could stop this, then he would. God must not be all-powerful or he must not love you. God is malicious. God is sadistic. All of the accusations that you'll hear, and yet for you who have the Holy Spirit, those just don't seem to land peacefully in your soul. And you think about them, and maybe there's a season where you're like, yeah, God... Yeah, God, how could you, right? But then the Holy Spirit, patient as he is, says, calm you down for a moment. And then it's interesting, the Christian ends up saying, why did you? And then when we get the answer, this is insane, we worship. The Lord gives, Job says, the Lord takes away. Cursed be the name of the Lord. No, what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord, evidence of the Holy Spirit. And if this all sounds so stupid to you, okay, um, then either you're not a Christian or the Holy Spirit right now is just doing some work in you. And if he's truly in you, he's going to bring you to the place where you can say why. And if he chooses to give you the answer, because does he always give us the answer? Negative. If he chooses to give us the answer, 
we will worship him. And if he chooses to not give us the answer, we will worship him. So they come to you and they say, how could you? How could you worship a God who does this? And somehow we mean it. The Lord gives away and the the Lord takes away and the Lord blesses. The Lord gives me houses and he takes them away. He gives me family and he takes them away. He gives me friends and he takes them away. He gives me jobs. I just love him and I will worship him no matter what. Well, that's ridiculous, they might say to you. And how do you explain it? He's, he's good. The only explanation is that you have the Holy Spirit, which just gives you this ability to trust in the midst of pain and heartache that honestly they don't have. What's the difference? It's the Holy Spirit. That's it. And then you have the audacity to say, not only will I worship him, I am convinced more so than ever that he loves me. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's almost stupid. And if you put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you look dumb. But for those of you who have the Holy Spirit, you're like, how could I say anything else? And, and so this is my simple encouragement. Hezekiah reached his spiritual threshold. The Lord reveals stuff. Um, we're going to read the rest of the story later, maybe next week. Or, but it keeps going. He keeps doing other dumb things. Then he does some good things. But like we stop in this moment and... And just say, God, like, there are dark places in my heart that you're going to have to expose. I don't know what the moments are going to be. I don't know where my spiritual threshold, the next one's going to be. But God, would you help me not shake my fist at you when it comes? And Lord, if I do that, I want to just say thank you now for being really gracious and patient with me. Because honestly, I don't know how I'm going to respond. I have no idea. But I believe you love me despite my struggles to respond well in the midst of severe pain and bitterness and heartache. And I love that he calls it great bitterness. He doesn't say, behold, it was for my welfare that I had insignificant trade struggles, you know, like great bitterness. So I look at you, Village Church, and I say, for those of you who are in the middle, God has patience with you, and he will help you, and he will bring you to the place where you say, why? He may not give you the answer, he might give you the answer. Be patient. The Lord is patient with you, and he loves you. And if you have been given the privilege to know the answer of why, tell it to people. Seriously. Talk to people about your pain and say, can I tell you why God did this in my life? And it may not help them in the moment or may help them, I don't know. But brag about God's sovereign purposes in pain because he is good and right. And I want to close with this, this statement and then we'll worship. As a Christian, we walk by faith, not by sight. That means we can't see it. It, doesn't mean, it means it doesn't always make sense. But if I knew what God knew, And if I had a holy, righteous, sinless, flawless, beautiful, perfect heart, I would do what God does every single time. Every time. I'm confident. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, why, 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 why? I have about a billion whys. I hope you do too. And he'll give me the answers to most of them, maybe not all of them, but he'll give me enough answers that I will say, if I knew what you knew, I would have done what you did every time. Why don't you tell all of humanity of that, Jesus? Because then it wouldn't be faith. (laughs) Oh, okay, fine. I would do what he does every time, and I'm confident because I have faith that when I get there, I will worship him despite what I see going on, despite what he has ordained or allowed. Amen, Village Church? If you're new, welcome. Weird subject, right? But we have to talk about it. I want to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close with one song, and it's a song where we are worshiping God as holy. And I can't think of a more appropriate song that in the midst of whatever you might be going through, where we can step back and say, I may not feel it, but I know it's true. 
Let's pray together. Father, I just want to say thank you for being such an amazing sustainer and comforter. God, you give us your Holy Spirit, which gives us even just the ability to endure another moment or minute or hour or day, especially when we're in the middle of it. So God, I want to just thank you that you do not abandon or forsake us in the midst of this. Lord, I know as a Christian, sometimes it's hard for me to imagine what it would even be like to have you not with me in those moments. So Lord, sometimes we can take for granted um, your presence in the midst of our pain. And, uh, but God, I know that you are so gracious with us. You walk with us. And your goal is to mature us and move us to a place with our palms up of worship, of blessing, despite what you've allowed or ordained. And so God, someone right now, uh, maybe this message is something we need to put in our pocket and hold on to for a couple years down the road. But God, I pray that when that time comes, you would teach us to worship you. And you would teach us that you love us and that whatever we are enduring, ultimately you will use for our welfare. Lord, we love you and we worship you as our holy, righteous God. In Jesus' name, amen.